in 2010, uh, I remember uh, working at the airport and I would be moving through like the baggage, where the baggage carousels are and where all the uh, desks are and there was this eerie silence. Um, I loved it. It was fantastic. There were no passengers. You know, there was no one to mess things up or uh, cause grief. And it was uh, uh, like, a, like a zombie apocalypse had just happened. Uh, why was it deserted? Well, over a thousand miles away, you may remember, uh, molten rock was coming up uh, um, under an Icelandic uh, volcano and there was this pressure building and the sort of magna would come up and inside this volcano pressure was building and uh, uh, eventually lava was projected 600 feet into the air and these molten rivers came down the sides and uh, just under a thousand people had to be evacuated from it. Um, more significantly for us though was that volcanic ash from inside the uh, volcano was projected up into the atmosphere and above this volcano and I think this is a picture of the actual volcano, um, and I'm not going to pronounce it. I don't know if you remember the. It's an impossibly uh, Icelandic word um, that I've got. So I've got all the vowels and consonants here, but I'm not going to say it. Um, and so this volcano projected this ash up into the air, and it's right above the jet stream, which made sure all this ash was carried uh, uh, Europe-wise. Uh, and so I don't know if you remember but our sort of cars and houses and windows were covered in this very fine uh, volcanic ash. But more importantly for the airline industry was that this ash would go, was so fine that it would get into the uh, jet engines and it would melt and it would cause the jet engines to stop which is kind of quite alarming if you're planning to go on holiday by airplane. And apparently there was a load of military jets uh, that had all sorts of damage because you know what the army are like and the Navy and uh, the Air Force. They think they can carry on regardless. Well, they tried and uh, all sorts of damage was done to the, um, uh, to the Air Force. And uh, so all the sort of civilian airlines were grounded and all the passengers couldn't go everywhere. Um, and it was fascinating that like air travel and all the movement of the populations was stopped in its tracks for something you could barely see. A bit like COVID, you know, it's something that you can like, you, it's very intangible, but suddenly it touches everything. And this phenomenon of ash flying out, of it getting absolute everywhere and causing all sorts of grief is, is kind of the basis for our text this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 9. Hopefully you've been uh, tracking with us uh, where we're uh, um, sort of progressing for this incredible story of Israel's freedom from Egypt. And uh, it says this in verse 8. Oh, I'm going to... This is a 15th century depiction of it. Look at that. Sort of Moses spraying something onto the kids and then them all getting nasty things. So it says this. Then Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot or ash from a furnace and let Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And the Bible loves its words festering boils. It's very hard not to wince 
at that term. Festering boils would break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they took soot from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. You know, this intransigent leader who refused to listen to anyone who wanted to continue his oppression of Israel. And so they stood before this oppressor. And Moses tossed the ash into the air. And festering boils did indeed break out on peoples and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them. Nice. And on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So this is part of this long story, of this long narrative of God coming in and uh, stopping the Egyptians in his tracks and rescuing Egypt. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of freedom. It's a story of God looking out for the little guy and uh, bringing in salvation. Ultimately, it would be a story that would would resonate when Jesus comes. And so we have Moses and Aaron, uh, and they're told to gather this soot, and they go to this uh, remnants of a fire and launch this up into the air. And this, a uh, bit like the volcanic ash from the volcano, goes everywhere and settles on everything, on the vast landscape of the Nile. If you've ever been to Egypt, you'll know the uh, 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 massive terrain that this uh, encapsulates. Now, previously they'd done it, and it had brought, I don't know if you remember, a few weeks ago, they'd got this dust, and it ushered in this rain of lice. And we had these awesome microscopic photos of lice that uh, 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 sort of were everywhere. But this time it's worse. This time it's not just lice, but it's this bacterial infection. The, uh, the follicles of hair on the skin would get infected and then fill up with pus. Don't ever say the Bible isn't descriptive and uh, uh, doesn't get down to the nitty-gritty. And both man and beast suffered from these boils. And if you want to just think, oh, you know what, I've had that. I've had some bad acne in my time. Perhaps it was like that. I want you to remember a uh, uh, possibly the oldest story in the Bible, the one that was written before anything else, in the book of Job. The book of Job has the uh, hero of the story suffer from boils. And this was before modern science. So this was more uh, before you could pop in an aspirin or an ibuprofen or have it sort of surgically lanced or dealt with in any humane modern, modern medicine way. When boils hit you in the ancient times, it really hit you. And the, uh, the effects of boils for Job are pretty extensive. This is uh, what one commentator says. So this is what the entire of Egypt looked like uh, they were enduring. In a moment, Job's body was covered with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. The exact illness that seized Job is unknown, uh, for boils is a non-technical term, it's the same here. From Job's speeches, some of the symptoms that he suffered included painful, itchy skin. Suddenly this is looking a lot worse than lice and gnats and frogs that we've had so far. Disfiguration, purulent sores that scab over, crack, and one of my favourite words, ooze. Sores infected with worms, fever with chills, 
darkening and shriveling of the skin, eyes red and swollen from weeping, diarrhea, sleeplessness and delirium, choking, bad breath, emaciation, and excruciating pain throughout his body. So when you hear boils, I don't want you just to think of that sort of time when you were as a kid, uh, uh, that uh, you had acne, but it is something a lot more powerful, a lot more uh, grim. And uh, they had no way of alleviating this pain. And so we're given a picture of the oppressors, these people that had kind of imprisoned uh, the Israelites, that were uh, subjecting them to all sorts of forced labor, that were killing their children. These aren't the innocent people. These are the oppressors. And God is uh, kicking back at these oppressors. And then we have these Pharaoh's advisors. I wonder if you remember them. These, uh, in, the, in the Bible, it calls them magicians. But these aren't the sort of kids' magicians that you invite to your kids' party. These are the advisors that were into uh, sorcery and the occult, that were into all sorts of uh, 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 demonic activity. And these guys had turned their staffs into snakes. The, the, they'd turned water into blood and they'd brought frogs out of the land. They had achieved some sort of uh, supernatural phenomenon. And it was this third plague, this uh, plague of lice that they couldn't replicate. And so you find this picture of these, uh, the kind of like the intelligentsia of the oppressors. They're being pushed back. They can do less and less than Moses can. Moses, the ignorant immigrant, this nuisance to the empire. And so we find to this, the sixth plague, and we find that the boils are everywhere, and these sorcerers, they hide away. These clever people of empire, of oppression, of uh, all sorts of uh, advancement, of power, they hide away. Now, after this after this infestation of boils. You never hear of these magicians again. I wonder what you think about that. I want to read to you the passage from Job where he is first hit with all those grim things that we hear about. It says this, one day when the angels came to report to God, Satan also showed up. And God singled Satan out, saying, And what have you been up to? And Satan answered, God, oh, go in here and there, checking things out. Then God said to Satan, Have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one like him. He's honest and true, totally devoted to me and hating evil. He has a firm grip on his integrity. You tried to trick me in destroying him, but it didn't work. This is a question I want you to ask yourselves. Satan answered, a human would do anything to save his life. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away his health? If you did that, he would curse you to your face. That's what. I wonder if you've got anything in your life that if God took away, that you would just curse God and uh, just omit him 
from your life. Is there anything, any aspect of your life that uh, you would just reject God? Go, you know, there can't be a God if this happens to me. I've heard that lots of times. God said, all right, go ahead. You can do what you like with him, but mind you don't kill him. And so Satan left God and struck Job with these terrible sores, and we've heard all the implications of it. And uh, Job, uh, Job uh, had ulcers and scabs from head to foot. They itched, and there's this awesome word again, oozed so badly that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself, then went on and sat on a trash heap among the ashes. And his wife said, what on earth are you doing? Why are you holding on to this belief in God? Why are you holding on to your integrity? Curse God and be done with it. God is no good for you. What is the point of God if he can't keep you? I wonder what the point of God is in our lives. And Job said, you're talking like an empty-headed fool. We take good days from God, why not also the bad days? And not once through all of this did Job sin, and he had said nothing against God. I have wrestled with how to articulate this this morning. Uh, Sam asked me after I'd kind of composed this, how did it go? And I was like, it's rubbish. I couldn't get the words out. And, and so I, I've been struggling, but hopefully you'll hear me without any technical language these Egyptian wise men, these magicians, when they faced these boils, they were like, that's it, I can't cope with it anymore. My understanding of God, both this Israeli God and our own God, has defeated me. Job met the same thing, and he stood there nevertheless. He hung in there. He had the courage to maintain his faith despite the fact his health had gone to pot. Now, don't make any mistake. Job loved his health. He loved his wealth that he had. And he had a glorious family. And each of those, through the story of Job, are taken away. I wonder how you would cope with that. The loss of your family, where you become the only one left. The loss of your health. So that suddenly even the skin you're in is uncomfortable. You can't even find a comfortable position to sit in, and you have got no means to survive. But Job knew that even though these were blessings, he didn't confuse those with his identity as a believer. Let me ask you, how is your walk with Jesus? How is it? Do you pray and meditate on scripture outside of church meetings when we don't make you it? Do you do it voluntarily? Are you loving towards your neighbours, even those you would call your enemies? You know, when no one is watching, how do you behave towards them? Are you generous? Are you good at being generous? Does your faith determine your behaviour, sort of Monday to Saturday, when you don't have a church meeting to go to? Do you speak in tongues when you can? Do you avoid manipulating others? We're good at that, aren't we? Manipulating others, uh, bending others to our will. But that has no place for a Christian. There are many today that have become disillusioned with their faith or 
they have put up with a stale faith or they just walk away. They struggle with their relationship with God because they've polluted it. They haven't understood what faith in God is actually like. You want and I want God and something else. God has, make no mistake, blessed me massively. But I need to be careful that I don't think that these things are part and parcel of my relationship with God. We want God and a partner. And when that partner's taken away through uh, sort of divorce, separation, or health, we cry out to God and go, don't you know? And God goes, I know. Or our health deteriorates, or our home uh, uh, goes, or our work is taken away, or our kids move on, or, and I think this is true perhaps for Pentecostals, more than, excitement isn't there. You know, you come to church now, I want the church to excite me. I want your programs of social care and worship and Bible reading to invigorate me. And if it doesn't, uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. And it's, yeah, the church isn't here to prop you up. When your importance is devalued, when the security of your life is taken away. What is there in your life that if God touched, you'd be like, oh, you know what? Me and you, God, we're done. Job loved God so much that there was no point at which God and him were done. I find that extraordinarily challenging. But it's also the picture the Bible paints of what faith looks like. Some of us use meetings here as a prop. Your only Christian activity is a Sunday morning. That doesn't make you a Christian, and it means your faith is shallow at best. If meetings are only an expression of devotion, if the songs Tim brings are the only ones you sing, then I would suggest to you that your faith is shallow, if it's there at all. When you whinge that church isn't to your taste, the problem's not us. When churches go wrong, and man, they can go wrong. Church leaders are a spectacularly arrogant bunch of people, and we make all sorts of bad decisions that wreck churches. And then people go, oh, my faith in God is eroded because the church went wrong. My friend, your relationship with Jesus is not mediated between the church. Uh, between the church isn't the mediator between you and God. You're supposed to have a direct relationship with Him. This church may collapse next week when you found I've taken all the funds and moved my family to the Maldives. What a wonderful experience that would be. And then go, oh, I can't go to church anymore. Can't love God anymore. I thought Kevin was all that, and now I realise he's not. And it's a case of, no, you're supposed to have a direct relationship with God. This meeting is not entertainment. It's not infotainment. It's supposed to be an expression of what you've lived out during the week, of your devotion to God. It's a place where you go, oh, not, I don't just sing on my own now. I get to sing with everyone else. 
It's a place that I get to serve and be generous and kind and thoughtful rather than, and we're good at this too, coming to church, coming, you know, it hasn't gone so well, preparing to come. Someone says the wrong thing and then we just go down that downward spiral of whinging and hate and sort of uh, discontent. You don't get to rate us. You don't get to give us feedback at how you think we've served you this morning. It's a place we all come to make it part of our walk with God. Church will not live up to your expectations. I will not live up to your expectations. Let me tell you, if you got as close to me as my wife, you would know that I'm not the holy man perhaps you imagine I am. If you ask my kids searching questions, you'd be like, oh, how's he got to be pastor of a church? These things that we couple with God will always fail. And when they do, if we are confused about our faith, our connection with God will suffer. If we mix God and anything else, that temporal thing will uh, fail. And if we've mixed God with it, our faith in God will fail too. Our souls are made for eternity. They're made for communicating with God himself. Do not imagine that your soul needs anything more or less than God himself. Our Heavenly Father doesn't love you and your job, doesn't love you and your partner, doesn't love you and your children, doesn't love you and your functions. If you lost all those, God would still say, I am thrilled to have Barry and Andy and Barbara as my children. If everything goes to pot, they are still precious to me. In fact, it makes no difference what they're up to. I love them as my own. And we are supposed to reciprocate. We should love God whether life is going really, really well. And we've got a really nice car parked in the car park. We've got some really nice trainers on our feet. And uh, we're looking forward uh, to a really nice Sunday roast at Toby's Carvery. We need to learn from God's love for us, from Job's behaviour when everything was taken away. The only thing that we really, really, really need, despite all the adverts and everything else, is our Heavenly Father. And the only thing that we should really, really focus on and love and want and search for above all else is Him. Now, there's a famous film called Casablanca, um, the age where uh, uh, films were uh, um, sort of everyone had the same experience. And there's a film called Casablanca, and there's these Nazi soldiers in, the, in one scene, and they've taken over the corner of a pub, and they're in a country that they are the rulers of, and they've sort of occupied during the war. And they come over and they take over the piano, um, and they start singing the German national anthem. And basically, it's an affront. It's this moment of abuse. It's the oppressor saying, 
we are in charge, we're singing our songs and we're spitting in your faces. And everyone else, all the, 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 uh, the, the natives and the anti-Nazi people, they're feeling devastated. They're hearing this abomination, this German national anthem sung in their pub. And they can't go in open rebellion because the Nazis are in a, a military charge. And silence is no better because they're distraught and chewed up inside. And there is this man, and this man comes forward, and he's with the underground resistance. And he has a nod at the uh, um, musicians, and he wants to play the French national anthem. Now, this is a moment of genius. And there is this moment of stillness, and this is the exact still from this scene. So this underground resistance guy wants to get the musicians to sing the French national anthem to oppose the, uh, the triumphant German national anthem. And everyone looks to the owner of the bar and says, so what can we do? Can we do this? What should we do? How are we going to reply to these Nazis? Are we going to let them sing their songs? Are we going to start a bar fight that we are not going to win? Or is this third way the response? And uh, the bar owner takes a moment and he assesses it and you can see uh, he knows that it's an important moment to make a decision. And then you just see him nod and the bar erupts into this great uh, resounding rendition of... Uh, Le Marseille, this wonderful uh, thing about the sort of French uh, sort of overcoming its oppressors. And the, these are Germans, these uh, uh, emblems of oppression and death and bullying and bigotry. They are drowned out by the shouts and calls and music of the French national anthem. Looking around, I know many of us love and follow Jesus to some extent, you know, to the best we can. But it works out differently for each of us. Some of us don't like conflict. You know, we avoid it. If there's any way that we can avoid having an argument with someone, we will do it. We don't want anyone uh, to get in the way or uh, um, sort of bring our faith into public. And it is hidden and private and so personal that no one else even knows that we love Jesus. Others appear, and this is like the equal and op opposite um, error. We're like one-men crusaders or one-women crusaders. We are hell-bent on trampling on sin whenever we see the whiff of it. If we hear someone say something, we're on them. We're like some sort of moral police that no one ever asked for. And the first option we can sometimes uh, imagine, we're living peacefully with people. You know, we don't want to get up anyone's noses. But what happens is we just become complicit in evil. Other people do terrible things and we don't challenge it. But the second one is no better. It means that we have a shallow faith. It is aggressive and self-righteous and we become uh, no less of a bully too. And that scene in Casablanca should remind us that beyond silence and violence, there can be other ways to bring truth and love and grace. 
Today, in this scene in the Exodus story, the Magi have hidden themselves away. They cannot cope with the boils that have assailed them. No shouting match has seen them go. They have gone of their own accord. God delights, let me tell you. God's delights, not just in us fighting or fleeing in confrontations. He loves to bring third solutions that are like the French national anthem. Um, I'm going to read from the message, but you are welcome to follow on uh, in your own Bibles in uh, John chapter 8. This is the uh, sort of uh, last point that I want to make. And it says this in uh, John chapter 8. The religious scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in an act of adultery. Where was the guy? That's always there. Like, why have they brought in the woman? Because she is an easy target. Someone they can bully and tread down. So these men bring in this woman to uh, accuse. And they stood uh, in plain sight of everyone. Imagine the shame of that. And these religious bullies said this. Teacher, this woman has caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? Jesus loves the law. He loves the Old Testament. But what on earth is going on when these religious leaders parade a woman caught in the middle of it and parade her to be shamed and invite Jesus to first throw the first stone. And the text says they were trying to trap Jesus into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. If he'd said, yes, this woman deserves to die, uh, the Pharisee would be like, ah, he's just like us. And if he said, no, she doesn't deserve to die, then he would be accused of being a weak-kneed liberal sort. And listen to what Jesus does. There is no violence and no silence. Jesus does this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. As far as we know, that's the only time he ever wrote anything that's sort of recorded in Scripture. And we've got no idea what he wrote. I love the different guesses of theologians. Uh, but he wrote something in the, on the dirt. And they kept at him badgering. And he straightened up and said, The sinless one among you, you go first and throw the stone. And bending down, he wrote some more in the dirt. The religious leaders, Pharisees, bullies, men that are up for a, a, a good execution, they were stopped in their tracks. Hearing what Jesus said, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest. And the woman was left alone. And Jesus stood up to her and said, Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, Master, she says. And neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your way. From now on, don't sin. So we have this charade, this play of the religious bullies wanting to expose Jesus as one or the other and they hope him to force him into silence or violence and Jesus finds this third way. He says something 
spirit-inspired that says those without sin should throw the first stone. And like the Magi in our Exodus story, God's opponents, they fade away. They can't stand in the face of this issue. It says this in Zechariah 4.6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Hopefully you love peace and justice. And I believe Christians are called to finding these third ways. Not being complicit with the evil and not sort of launching in to dragging tanks into a war. We're not to run away frightened or start busting heads together. And Christians have done both over the last 2,000 years. Christians are supposed to hear the Spirit and find new ways of touching conflict. And so this morning I want you to think of the people that are awkward in your life. If you've got no one awkward, I've got some awkward people in my life I would love to introduce you to. Think of situations that seem impossible. You know, you can't think around them. They seem insurmountable. And this third way is an invitation to see things differently. Don't just hide. The Spirit never inspires timidity. It doesn't cause us to shy away from the challenge. But we're not to thrash around either, blindly swinging our fists. We are not supposed to be the heroes of our stories. I wonder if you're the hero of your story and Jesus says, no, I'm the hero of your story. It's not about you, it's about me. And so this morning as I close, I want you to take a breath. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Make room for a third option. Now, I spent ages compiling examples of how people have done this. I wanted to inspire you from the annals of church history, from my years as a Christian, telling you all the different ways that you should uh, do this. But that misses the point. Each of us are different. Each of us will experience this differently. We are all unique people in unique situations. And the Spirit is sensitive to that. You won't respond like I will, and I won't respond like you will. The Spirit is sensitive to the situation and the personality and the values. But we do need to listen to him. And we do need to act as he directs us. So I want you to keep aflame the spirit in you. You know, he loves to uh, um, be encouraged and invited in our lives through prayer and scripture and fellowship. These are ways that uh, he finds that uh, he is more welcome. And secondly, we need to be familiar with the Holy Spirit. We need to be good at asking, Holy Spirit, what do you want to happen here? We need to be better at listening to his direction. And we need to be confident in acting like this. Whatever our struggle, and if you don't have any struggles right now, I'm sure the week ahead has got something in store for you. That's not supposed to be some demonic prophecy over your lives. It's just life throws up different things. And I want our solution not to be, how can I avoid 
any grief in this situation or bring on the next challenge and let me crack some heads. But Holy Spirit, what do you want to guide me in? Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Exodus and we thank you for the different ways it shines light on our walk with you. Lord God, I pray for two simple things. God, I pray that our relationship with you would be direct, that there would be nothing else that gets in the way, so that when life rises and falls, our faith in you remains strong and steadfast. And secondly, I pray that as we face life, often on our own, that we won't feel scared so that we have to retreat into our shells. Lord God, and I pray that we won't feel aggressive and start wanting to uh, beat people over the head. But Lord God, that we would draw on the strength of the Holy Spirit to guide our language and to guide our actions. And that we would be people that bring healing and love to a world and society that is in desperate need of these third ways. Lord God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.